0: Welcome to the ARC Experience, featuring the stories of self-advocates with disabilities and their families from around Wisconsin. Be inspired. Take action. And now for today's episode. And welcome to the ARC Experience Podcast. I am your host, Lisa Pugh, Executive Director of the ARC Wisconsin, and I am joined today by Beth Swedeen. She is the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Board for People with Developmental Disabilities. Welcome, Beth.
1: Thanks, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me. It's been my dream to be on a podcast and I can't think of a better one to be on than yours.
0: Well, I'm sure this is going to be the best podcast ever. So let's get started. I want to make sure first, though, that our listeners are aware of what is
1: BPDD. Tell us. Sure. We're more than an sh- acronym. So the Board for People with Developmental Disabilities is a group of people living with disability and their families who've been appointed by the governor, and they are charged under a federal law to really look out for the best interests of people with disabilities by making recommendations to policies. And also to spark innovation in the state and to dream what if. So we have funds that we can put toward innovation projects, and then we hopefully can take them up to scale and get legislators and policymakers interested in um, making them become something for everyone in the Wisconsin.
0: What a great mission. And I have to thank you that this podcast is actually one of your innovation projects too, and experimenting with this as a mode to reach self-advocates and families. So we are innovating as we talk here. Awesome. Um, a-, a great investment in funds, I might say. Wonderful. Thank you. So you know, Beth, uh, you and I have both been advocates in Wisconsin for, oh, the last 15 years or more, and we've met a lot of great self-advocates and family members, and we've also seen a lot of disability history, and um, I, I wanted to use this time with you to kind of talk about those top five, you know, disability history moments or top five landmark um, pieces or events. And um, so I'm hoping you'll join me in kind of talking about those and reminding our listeners what those are. If I'm looking at federal disability policy or disability history, would you agree that the Americans with Disabilities Act is probably right up there with one of the most important things that has happened for
1: people? Absolutely, Lisa. And, you know, it's interesting we're talking right now because we're 30 years into celebrating that piece of legislation. It was bipartisan. It was um, signed by a Republican president. And before it, believe it or not, people with disabilities did not have a right to ride on a bus, or to get into a building, or if their school didn't have, you know, if all the classes were on the second floor, you could be told, sorry, you can't use this school. I mean, it kind of blows your mind when you think about it. And so, um, you know, just thinking back in one generation, I mean, 30 years is basically a generation, we have come far in just expecting that people with disabilities be part of everyday life as they should be.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, originally a lot of people thought about the ADA as about curb cuts and physical accessibility, but we've really started to move beyond that. But there still is so much accessibility
1: to to go. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even now, you know, if I go with my friends who use wheelchairs to businesses, we do have to scout them out ahead of time to see if, you know, we can go to a restaurant and all sit together. It's just kind of sort of is amazing that that's still true but you know the attitudes around disability are just as important and i think you know the ada said hey we are missing out as a society on the richness of so you know doing things in the community um, that can make our communities better. And so, you know, the idea of, you know, moving any kind of barriers, including attitudinal barriers, is so important. I think disability itself is not the big problem. It's the society's attitude toward disability that's the real in it.
0: So still a lot of work to do. You know, what I... I've liked to um, see recently um, web accessibility and kind of online accessibility and really an understanding of how people can access information.
1: Right, right. And right now, you're hearing about the digital divide, right? Which is, as COVID has um, really closed down physical spaces, a lot of our um, activities have moved to virtual platforms. Well, a lot of people with disabilities don't have the same access as people, out. so you're seeing that they're even more cut off and more divided and more unable to contribute now, just because they don't have a piece of equipment. And sometimes that piece of equipment is, you know, the matter a matter of your four hundred dollars. It's really nothing in the grand scheme of what they could be giving back and contributing. So, yeah, I mean, we just still have a long ways to go. So
0: moving on, another one that comes to mind for
1: me is the
0: Olmstead decision. So for our listeners, I'll remind them what that is. On June 22nd, 1999, Supreme Court ruled under the Americans with Disabilities Act, so it's a court ruling that has to do with the ADA, that um, people could not be um, institutionalized, uh, and that was really a form of discrimination. And so uh, thus kind of started the whole movement of getting, people with disabilities out of institutions. I mean, we don't really talk a lot about Olmstead now, but it was actually a pretty significant
1: ruling. Right. And, you know, right now, I think a lot of people living with disability, especially maybe people under the age of 40, are thinking, well, of course, I should be able to live where I want. I should be able to, you know, apply for a job where I want. Well, back before Olmsted, most people with intellectual and developmental disabilities were living in facilities. They were living in state centers and, you know, intermediate care facilities, and they really had rights. And so, to think that in 20 years, now we have you know a whole generation of people who are like well yeah I want to move into an apartment or you know I'm going to apply for a job and before they were really pretty micromanaged I mean it was it was really you had to do where you lived whatever those rules were and you know it just was something where people's voices were not heard and so we really that rule even though it's Um, a Supreme Court case, and it's something that a lot of people maybe aren't familiar with, it really has focused on making sure that services are provided in the community first and that people get plans where they get to decide what's important in their life. So it was really a critical decision.
0: Well, and I think in recent years, um, people in Wisconsin might be more familiar with the home and community-based settings rule, which is taking Olmstead and kind of applying it to the services that people receive, whereas Olmsted was really about where do people live? They shouldn't be living in the institution. They should be able to live in their own homes and communities. But now we're starting to think about what are institution-like settings? What are places that people go that kind of feel and look like an institution? So I guess we continue to make
1: progress on that front. Right. We make progress. And also, I think the home and community-based rule setting has really also allowed the dollars to shift in a different direction. So, 20 years ago, I think most Medicaid long-term care dollars, like 80%, 85% went to those congregate you know, large facilities to keep them going and they were really expensive and people didn't get a very good quality of life for the dollars we spent. And now you're seeing most states have tipped the balance and the majority of their long-term care dollars are going to individual settings so that people can have lives that are closer to what they really want.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can trace a lot of that history back to Olmstead. Um, Moving to Wisconsin, we've had some pretty significant um, disability rights moments in our own state, which I think we should also be very proud of. I'd like to start and ask you about our Employment First movement in Wisconsin and the Employment First law. Do you remember
1: the day that that was passed, Beth? I sure do because I was at the Capitol and so were about 70 other um, people with disabilities and family members. It was such a joyful day um, because we had worked for many, many years to try to get law in Wisconsin that would prioritize public dollars to go toward employment first people should be able to choose where they want to work and they should get the adequate supports um, from the service system to support them to be successful there. And that has not always been the case. And I remembered, I bet you do too, Lisa, that there was um, were people high up in Wisconsin government who said, we will never be an employment first state. I don't even want to hear the words employment for Wisconsin. Well, within two or three years of that, It was a completely different situation. I think having so many people come forward and tell their stories and talk about the importance of employment and of having that individual job that, you know, with those coworkers and with a boss that supports them and appreciates their work, that really did make all the difference. And um, it it was a huge, huge win for the state of Wisconsin.
0: You know, and I think related to that and what helped to move Employment First along in Wisconsin was at the federal level, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, what some people call WIOA, because for the first time in employment policy, it said, you know, before our youth um, leave school, there has to be some discussion about how we can get them connected to
1: community jobs. So what what impact do you think that that had, Beth? Well, that piece of federal legislation was huge because we knew from the research and from our own work in Wisconsin that if youth leave school with a paid work experience, they're twice as likely to be lifelong employees. And if they had two jobs in high school, then they're five times more likely to hold a community job. So, the numbers really tell the story there that if kids get connected early on to work, just like kids without disabilities, that provides that track record and that experience and they never move back. Like they never are like, oh, sign me up for, you know, a prevoke experience. I'm ready to go to my next job. So um that made all the difference. And I think, you know, having a law that said kids can't exit high school straight into a facility that they have to have paid experiences first was crucial.
0: hmm I agree. What kind of related to that, another um really landmark event in Wisconsin just a couple of years ago was the passage of our supported decision-making law, right? How do you right.
1: think this changed things already for people in Wisconsin? Well, you know, the exciting thing about that is that people didn't even know what they could ask for, right? So, there's always been a very historical path in Wisconsin for youth with intellectual and developmental disabilities at 18. Their families are told, you know, oftentimes from when they're very young, oh, 18, you know, your, your child, your son or daughter is going to need a guardian. Maybe you should start now to think about that. And so, when supported decision making came on the scene and families were told, no, um, kids with disabilities can learn and make decisions, and we all need help, and your kid needs a little help, but so does everybody else, and you really don't have to go to court. You don't have to declare your son or daughter incompetent. That was just like a game changer for people because um, realize that they don't have to strip rights away from young people at very young ages and that we're all lifelong learners and that we can learn, you know, as we go and get help with decisions as we go and um, we saw within that law being passed within weeks, we were hearing stories of families who had canceled court date, canceled, you know, meetings with attorneys because they had a new tool that they use that could help their son or daughter learn and gain skills around decision making, but still get support from family members and other trusted adults um, to make decisions. And then they could, you know, they they could continue to make decisions and, and they'll keep all their rights. And a lot of families before that um, were told you need to get a guardianship and their son or daughter lost their right to vote. They lost their right to, um, you know, to do many, many things uh, that they probably would have been just fine doing. And if they didn't have the skills at 18, you know, eventually you learn the skills, right? We, we all make decisions at 18 that we probably weren't, aren't still making when we're 35. So, um, yeah, that, so it's it's a huge, huge win for the state of Wisconsin. It hasn't just been the people with disabilities, but it's been their entire families who have just breathed the sigh of relief. What a great, wonderful thing.
0: I think we're just really seeing the benefits of that law. 10 years from now, my hope would be that a lot of the landscape of guardianship and self-advocacy, self-determination in Wisconsin will have changed because of that, you know, conversation that doesn't seem mandatory at age 18 anymore.
1: Right. It's it's not like a do or die moment, right? It's it sort of lifts that burden of, oh, we're we're running out of time and instead, you know, that young person can feel free to continue to learn and grow, live, and um, gain skills along the way and not have to worry about an artificial date. And Wisconsin really is a leader with that for sure.
0: Our final top five item that I know you might be particularly excited about is just what we're seeing in Wisconsin in terms of the self-advocacy movement. For people that don't really know what that is, could you describe... What is, what is a self-advocacy movement and then what does it look like in Wisconsin? Why are you excited about it?
1: Well, the the term has always been, you know, nothing about us without us. And that's so true. But for so long, um, when services have been developed or programs for people with disabilities, the person with the disability hasn't been at the table saying how it really would have impact them. And so the self-advocacy movement has really said, you know, Nothing should be developed if there aren't a critical number of self-advocates involved in shaping whatever that, effort is. And not a token person, not like, oh, we're going to have a steering committee of 30 people and we better get one person with a disability. But we need the varied perspectives of many people with disabilities shaping whatever it is that we are working on. Um, And that was something that, you know, even now, I do go to a lot of meetings and events where there aren't very any self-advocates there or there's the token one or two, but that is changing in Wisconsin. And I would say 15 years ago, there were two or three trusted people and they were meeting. Right. And so the, now it's like, Oh, who can we call? Well, who can we call in Ozaki County? Who can we call in Vilas County? I mean, we know people all over the state who are effective voices um, and who can eloquently and accurately, but not just from, uh, you know, not just Covering all people with disabilities, but as, you know, different voices all contributing to a better overproduct. So, you know, the pers- the self-advocate in Milwaukee may have a very different set of priorities than the self-advocate in Ashland. And so, when they all come together and speak up, it makes for a much, much better program, much better public policy.
0: And I think, you know, one one testament to that is that, um, and in another podcast episode, we're talking to Cindy Bentley. That Wisconsin might be the only state I'm not sure whose statewide self advocacy organization is actually run by a person with an
1: intellectual and developmental disability. Right. Um, in fact, if if it's not the only one, it's one of a handful that um, are run, you know, with leadership and executive director who's living with an intellectual disability. Oftentimes, you know, People with disabilities are on staff but the decision maker or the leader is somebody without a disability. That's not true in Wisconsin and I think that's something that we all should be really proud of and that should take a lot of credit for because she has been a pioneer. You know you think of Cindy just last week or week before celebrated her 30th anniversary out of Southern Center. She lived as an adult in an institution and what a huge huge set of accomplishments she has gained since then. I mean, from, from being told she'd never be a dependent worker, that she could never live on her own, and now she's running a statewide advocacy organization. And when I talk on national meetings, people will say, Cindy from Wisconsin, oh, she's a rock star. People know her all over the country. Yeah. Well, she
0: told us she's been to the White House twice. So who, who do you know that can say that? So. Right. So, Beth, wrapping up today, I wanted to make sure people know where to find BPDD because a lot of the things that we talked about today, you know, employment first and supported decision making, self-advocacy training and opportunity,
1: you have a lot of that right on your website, don't you? We do. So, people should go to wi-bpdd.org and I'm sure you'll have that in the notes. Um, but everything is there and I do want to shout out one of our particular areas where I'm very proud and that is our self-determination channel which again um, self-advocates are the stars of that channel Um, and they do videos a couple times a month and we're always looking for new stories so for self-advocates listening to this podcast who think they have something to offer you know around a topic that they think is important I think our self-determination channel is a great Venue you for that, so they should get a hold of us for that. And then every month um, in our newsletter, we focus on a different self-advocate through our What's the Word article. So, if you want your picture and your story told monthly in our newsletter, folks should contact Jeremy Gunlock on our staff. So, um, lots of opportunities for self-advocates to get involved and to share their leadership wise words with the rest of Wisconsin.
0: All right. So just a reminder, WI-BPDD.org is where you're going to find lots of rich information and opportunities. So, and learn a little bit more about um, BPDD too. So thanks Beth for spending some time with us today and walking through moments in disability history, both nationally and in Wisconsin. We sure have made a lot of progress, a lot more work to do. And thank you so much for all your work. Thanks for having me, Lisa. All right. Thank you to our listeners for listening to the ARC Experience podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thank you. Today's episode of the ARC Experience was brought to you by the ARC Wisconsin, the state's oldest advocacy organization for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. It's funded in part by the Wisconsin Board for People with Developmental Disabilities our theme music called species is the property of ey5z and cannot be copied or distributed without permission it was produced by eleanor Cheatham, a composer and artist with autism